Hello and welcome back to New Oil New Ringcast with Artistically R, the podcast hosted by me R for New Rainbow Project, which you'll be able to watch from tomorrow on YouTube and uh, Facebook Watch and read in the next coming days on www.newrainbowproject.com, the website for the New Rainbow Project where you can find a lot more about podcast, but fuck the podcast. This this uh, podcast episode comes out on Monday the third year of October, and many looked up on a cast about the episodes I released over the past year. It turns out that oh a year ago today I released a trailer for the return of the podcast after its indefinite leave. From the short series that ran in 2020, and I'm so pleased to have it back and be doing a lot regularly. And it's been great to be able to grow on it and continue it for over a year, and to be able to do that with so many amazing guests. And for you yourself for tuning in, and hopefully we will continue this podcast for many way longer. And but back to on this episode, this like this podcast starting in 2020, this guest has a release into the year 2020 as she had her memoir, her debut book published that year. And that year, like I remember when it was started and planning the podcast for its original first one before the indefinite leave. Her name uh, Peter uh, appeared on a list of guests I would have on the podcast. I would want to get on the podcast. And she still remained there until I was able to get her on for this episode. So it's been a long time coming to get Kaya Storm to come on the podcast. In this interview, we'll chat, I'll chat to her about the man, memoir. Unlike with learning difficulties, ADHD, dyslexia, and dyspraxia, her book was was one of the first books I remember reading when I subscribed to Audible, which was the first experience I had of reading since I was at school. In this interview, I went out about the experience of reading, my my experience of reading. Visual processing difficulties as part of being autistic and dyspraxic, as their sensory processing elements can occur, but also that talking about her own experiences with reading as she is dyslexic, but also quite a, you know, where somebody always passionate about reading and, uh, and like quickly developed young reader from a young age. And something that you wouldn't obviously assume with AD, uh, with dyslexia, even that stereotype about uh, dyslexia. So we chat about, you know, the stereotypes come with, uh, you know, learning difficulties and, you know, the that experience of being a neurodivergent as usual. But, you know, I recently uh, published an article 
uh, they were even on my website, theworrainbowproject.com, and did an uh, artistically as diary section on the Rainbow Reads not about uh, my own experience of being a reluctant reader, which I think ties in with this episode theme. So please check out the New Rainbow Project's website to get more of the content. But if you want to continue to find and connect a bit more after what you hear about this interview, give me feedback, things, uh, email at newrainbow at newrainbowproject.com or on social media, on feds, Instagram, TikTok, a lot. Exceptionally, to know that, it's at Newrainbow Project. Simply that. And... So if you want to get in touch like that, but obviously, you know, even though we've been back over years, Tim, trying to grow and develop this podcast, so wherever you listen to it, please rate, uh, subscribe and say, give a positive review, comment, and make sure people hear about this. With that, here's the podcast. Hi, I'm Kaya Stone. I'm a writer, and I'm the author of the book, Everything is Going to be K.O. Do you want to give a bit of an introduction to what everything is going to be KO is about? Yeah, so everything is going to be KO is a memoir. So it's a book about me, which once you get over that bit, it's much more interesting than just about me. It's about my experiences with education and my diagnosis of neurodivergence, which happened when I was in my 20s. Oxford University so I didn't know what dyslexia and dyspraxia and ADHD really meant I certainly didn't know that I had them when I got that diagnosis I ended up doing lots and lots of research and at the time this is before TikTok and before the sort of massive resurgence of information that's online now in that time period there was very little information for people for adults basically and so I started making this project, which is what everything's going to be KO turned into. It was a stage show before. And so it was largely about creating something that I wanted to exist in the world and that I wish I had been able to read when I got my diagnosis initially. Yeah, when you were in university that you got diagnosed and like you documented in the book uh, on a chapter called Working with that, you explained how at the time you diagnosed, you didn't understand what having dyslexia I mean because you was quite well read you read quite a lot throughout your childhood life that assumption that you couldn't be dyslexic because you had those the ability to read quite intensively and keen interest in English literature was it like growing up for yourself and was the different education systems you went through. So a combination of different types of education systems. So I went to uh, a Montessori school. That was my first bit of education. My mum my especially was really into sort of like alternative education. But then we had also moved around the world. And so we're also talking about different global systems. So that first school was in Cape Town. And then I moved to America. And so the difference between those two things was very stark in my Montessori school in South Africa and Cape Town. You didn't start to learn to read and write until later. Whereas in New York, when I arrived, I was in just like a, a normal school and everybody had been reading and writing for two or three years before I arrived. I was really behind there 
obviously, because I'd come from a different school system, some of those clearer signs of my SPLDs were sort of chalked up to there being a different education system. From there, we moved back to the UK and I went to a series of state comprehensives in West Yorkshire, which were oversubscribed, big classrooms, I think fairly normal of the British school system. Then I went to one secondary school before I before I went to Oxford. So I was perpetually the new kid, as well as having to navigate different systems. As you said, from going to the Montessori education, more of like an alternative education system, as you said, like the education systems leads us off like five or six like you were saying about when you was in the Montessori school education system but even for compared to the British school education and the American there's a lot more focus on the English and maths as in the book you know education for yourself was focused more on imagination more about playing having a bit more liberalized education system it must have been quite a culture shock then going into the American system where it's more strict, rigid, although you didn't have their thing off having the school uniform. It must have been quite a culture shock then even to notice at a young age. A massive culture shock. I mean, much of my Montessori education had been like, like you say, imaginative play, a lot of tea parties. Philosophy is like learning through play. Then suddenly being sitting down at a desk and writing. I do remind, remember finding it tough and I remember everything being so different. In Cape Town, we were there from 98 to 2000, I think. So post-apartheid South Africa I was really little, so I didn't necessarily know the political impacts. But the places couldn't be more different to moving to outside New York and the kids there being incredibly wealthy. It was obviously a, a, a yeah, massive culture shock for the school system, but also just a massive culture shock in, in general of, of before people not having very much and then arriving in America, people having more than you could possibly imagine. Um, as a small child, I just took it as these are just two very different places. Then moving back to Yorkshire, another another shock altogether. But I say it's a lot to process as a child. My memories never great with like it was something quite to vividly remember or work out how to tell that story from when he was a child. Going for that imaginative play where you could express yourself a lot more in the system of the Montessori school system allowed you that ability to find out how you wanted to tell your story from yourself and more confidence in that with like the Americanized or British school system there's lack of that encouragement for individual freedom of expression. I remember when you read and like when you went into USA's school system you know like you were starting to see your learning difficulties more visible and something that you would have thought that your teachers and you know like assistant teachers would have been able to notice around you as because you made to think that you like are that feeling off like made to feel like a bit more like as you documented been more of like an idiot in the class as you've said quite bluntly what was like then when you went into a system that education where you more more visibly noticed that you was different and struggling and had challenges and what was it like now when you got diagnosed looking back then and missing that did you miss you got diagnosed earlier with these things or that 
they pursued it further looking if you got any learning difficulties at that age. Yeah, I think in some ways the book itself is an exercise in exploring, you know, why it was that it took so long for that diagnosis to come through. And that, you know, I guess part of the storytelling is sort of being like, look, these are all the these are all the signs with hindsight that that could have been picked up. I think I conclude in the book it I think the the reality was that my my parents both left school when they were 16. They both have learning difficulties that they got diagnosed after I got my diagnosis. And so I couldn't have sort of, I understand why my parents didn't pick up those things in that I remember distinctly spelling tests. I remember with my mum having to do my spelling tests and how, I mean, horrific, just like one of the worst things of school, just having to try and learn over and over. And I, I couldn't, I, I talk about it in the book, I, I everything for me is visual. I don't really necessarily like phonetically read. I look at the image and it looks right or it looks wrong. And I remember my mum saying that, like I remember asking her how to spell things and she was like, I'll have to write it out and look at it and see if it looks right or wrong. And so I think so much of that, like part of the big reason why I think that it was never picked up was because I was surrounded by people who also had um, a similar set of neurodivergences to me. And so when I explained what was happening to me in school, it was really familiar to my parents. And so for them, they were like, well, I think that's what school's like for everyone. Um, I mean, for the teachers in various different bits, I mean, in America, I did have a learning support person. They thought maybe I had learning difficulties, but they thought that it was probably more likely it was just that I was behind because I hadn't had the teaching. And so I learned pretty quickly to read and write because I had a lot of one-on-one support there. And because I had that one-on-one support, I think that then that uh, buffeted. It meant that when I went to the UK and there was no one-on-one support, and I I mean, we can't, can't ignore the fact that I was a lovely little white girl and I was pretty well behaved. And so, you know, I did well enough. It wasn't a problem. And so I think that... Um, that identification of like not being a problem especially in oversubscribed um, big classrooms with not enough um, not enough you know uh, teaching support not not the fault of the teachers but in in British schools I was never a priority it was always that I did well enough and that that and I wasn't causing problems that's the problem with schooling system is that it's about getting everyone through enough not fulfilling people's full potential. I remember reading it and you said that when you went into a British school, lavas with like 35 other children in the classroom, likely that, you know, it would most time it would be with one teacher. So it would be easy for things to go under the, under the carpet and unrecognised and for it just to be something that they don't really like pursue further or notice with yourself then you know what being less visible having challenges like that made it hard then for you to get diagnosed or recognized with like ADHD dyspraxia and mm-hmm. dyslexia so as you say even with your parents then like they also never divergent and when you started doing a play and writing a book what was it like for them to see you doing this type of project where it's something that obviously if they knew were divergent themselves, they can relate to this almost a bit of them in this. So 
almost like them. I mean, as I talk about in the book, they're really supportive of everything that I do. You've touched on something here in that, like, this project, while it was revelatory for me, it was completely as life-changing for my whole family. They had as much denial as I did at the beginning because I remember talking to them about what I was finding out and my parents being like, well, that's us. And and me being like, well, a lot of this stuff is hereditary, so it makes a lot of sense that that you you experienced this too. I know when I started doing the stage show, my <laughs> my parents they always come to everything. They were on the front row and they were more scared than I was. I think it's scarier to watch someone else perform than do it yourself. My mum is doing a PhD at the moment. She went and did her degree when I was doing my GCSEs, and then after I went to Oxford, my mum went to the RCA, the Royal College of Art, for her MA. For a long time, thought we had some really interesting discussions about disability. I think that you should tick the box. I think that you should try and get as much support as possible. My mum was very hesitant initially because she didn't want to be singled out. There's always a risk um, of when you go in and you're vocal about what you need that you might not get it and that um, you might be singled out in a negative way. But actually universities in lots of ways I have found have been the the organizations which have the greatest amount of support in that they legally have to and because it's about education they have these they have things in place that workplaces certainly don't while she's been doing her PhD especially she's got a lot more support and it's made a big difference it's like having that support system to enable you and so that's been really positive to see how the aim of the book was to tell my story in it to help other people but it's been great because I've seen how that has made a big difference to to all of my family my mum being one example. I said we have like what's my best struggle initially with the idea of reaching out for support early on in your life like support when you went into the school in America with cats and from not having the same type of education as your peers having support after your diagnosis when you went to university, but since your mother was a lot older than yourself and throughout your adult years, they assume that I'd become quite resilient with her learning difficulties. Yeah, for sure. And resilience is a, a really important life skill and it's a big family trait. It's a trait of people who are neurodivergent as a lot of picking yourself up. It's always about that really tricky balance between trying to give people support it, it shouldn't be the hardest thing in the world <laughs> not everything should be the worst possible struggle while also acknowledging that there is a level of hard work that's required from life it's a hard line to balance and what that looks like for different people what that support looks like that support looks like is different from person to person and try to identify what support you need it can be really difficult, especially when you're asked. That's one of the things that I think I'm, I'm better at now. But one of the things I found the most difficult in my initial diagnosis was that I was told, well, there's all this support. Like, what do you need? And I had no idea what I needed because I only had my coping mechanisms, which were no longer working. I didn't know what worked for other people. When they said, oh, well, what do you what do you need? It, it, it felt like a, a really difficult question to answer. So what has worked for you when from when you got your diagnosis? What other things have you learned from that and you learned about to yourself? It's interesting. I think a lot of this idea, like, I probably can't separate, like, the systems I keep in place for me 
for my personality and me as a neurodivergent person, I think what's interesting is that obviously they all merge and we all have our different coping mechanisms for life. Academically, the biggest revelation was that I could not uh, listen and take notes at the same time. That's something that has turned into a thing in my my wider adult life. Once I started recording my lectures, it meant that I could listen when I was there and then afterwards I could re-listen to my recording and re-type that up or make my notes after the fact. Now in my adult life, if I have meetings, I often will try and record them so that I can listen back because I'm often trying to process what's happening as it's happening. I, I don't know if it's particularly about my neurodivergence or whether it's just who I am. I write every day. I have keep a journal. And if I don't do that, I often feel like I end up carrying lots of stuff with me. It's a, it's a space which allows me to sort of take all the noise that happens in my head and put it onto a page. And it gives a sort of shift so that I can leave some things behind. I don't have to carry it all with me. And one thing that I, I I always did was I'm for time management and diary. I mean, I'm pretty obsessive about putting things into my diary <laughs> and I am always 10 minutes early for everything at least. And that that's sort of boring life stuff. But it, yeah, it's uh, I, I understand that my relationship with time is a bit crunchy. And so if I have things I need to do. <laughs> I have to I have to backward engineer that I'm leaving at a certain time and yeah I think it's it's funny now that I'm an adult and I because I don't work in an office I don't have a quote-unquote proper job I'm my own boss a lot of the things that in itself for me is a coping mechanism I think that I have as much as possible built my life around the things I like doing the things I'm good at and I've tried as far as possible not to put myself into situations that really make me feel my learning difficulties in really difficult ways. So being in an office environment is not great for me. I've been lucky enough to be able to not have to do that. And if I did have a different sort of job and I had to support myself in other ways, I think that my coping mechanisms have to would have to shift massively. I don't take any medication for my ADHD. And I think if I did have a sort of different sort of job, I would have to. And that's fine. When you mentioned about medication with ADHD, it's something that obviously that for anybody with ADHD can be totally different with like how much, like if you need medication or not, and that's something that works for them. But like with ADHD, like for, you know, like it's something that has gone undiagnosed with like for many years in your life because, you know, now I guess, you find that or you don't kind of fit that like age-old stereotype of where ADHD is from what you describe for the book, yeah, yeah, quite a quiet person. And has the stereotype around ADHD and quite negative one that I suppose is kind of still is changing out, but there's still obvious uh, like stereotypes and ableism around ADHD. But how do you find JDs to affect you? And is there any places that some people might not still recognise your ADs? And there's, do you find that for yourself there's still a stig- stigma around it? There's a level of like internal noise, which is the thing that I, I've always sort of considered 
the main feature of, of my ADHD. I haven't got a diagnosis of that via like a doctor. I, I think it's probably the area that I feel like least qualified to speak on. I think over the years, the features that I felt of my ADHD were stronger when I was at university and when I was at my year at drama school. It's fascinating from what I read and have spoke to other people. I know that it feels like it's a bit of a talking point at the moment. I was thinking about that Philippa Perry comment the other day, thinking about this idea of, it's really interesting to think about like neurodivergence and the internet. And with the internet, as we were saying, like there wasn't a TikTok when I got my diagnosis and, and my book came out just before a lot of ADHD TikTok accounts came through. I I think it's an interesting place of ableism in the ableism that I see the most is like people are really keen to sort of make it that you're like, well, this isn't your whole personality. I think people just want to make it less of a big deal than maybe it is to make themselves feel more comfortable. I, I would say this is generally for people who aren't in the neurodivergent community. And I think that like one of the things that I feel quite strongly about is that a lot of what we're talking about is how we experience the world and that our experiences are what we're talking about. So, you know, if I talk about the sort of level of noise in my head or about how I relate to time or how words on a page move for me or my relationship to space, which would be my, that's the the makeup of my neurodivergence. Um, I find it interesting when there's a lot of, you can't make this your whole personality. And I agree, it's not my whole personality by any stretch of the imagination, yeah. but it is how I experience the world. And so there's an element of like truth, that like a denial of truth or a denial of your experience that I think that's ultimately where I think the ableism of neurodivergence sort of seems to come in the most at the moment. And it's this idea that, I have my own questions. I, I do think that the way that the world is built at the moment is sort of designed to make us feel highly agitated and to have a lot of noise in our head and to have small attention spans. And I think that our environments might be accelerating our experiences. I'm, I'm not going to deny that by any sense. But the idea of the ableism that I like see the most is is about this idea of not being able to to accept that the way that we experience the world is is so inherent to who we are <laughs> and there is no separation of the self from that way that you envision and experience the world i know you have your own questions so is it more the questions about like how you you see the world accelerating what would you define as the questions that you have from when you just said about that my questions, I, I will say, I'm a bit. It's been a while since I, I did a lot of this research, so some of this might have changed. But I, I know that there are some ADHDs are sort of more, as far as I remember from my research, um, is a slightly different SPLD to things like dyslexia, dyspraxia, and, and autism, which sort of seem to be sort of more similarly on the same spectrum. And ADHD can appear people seem to I think experience it differently at different periods of their lives and there may be some links between ADHD and some sort of trauma responses as well and so I from that reading or from that research which I again say was a couple of years ago so I don't know whether it still scientifically stands the test of time but ADHD therefore seems to be a little bit more like an interaction that that's more changeable and and from my experiences that sort of rings true in that like 
but then again, I guess equally, this is why I'm saying they're questions equally. I I don't experience my other learning difficulties as like linear either. I had a, a day last week where my dyslexia, like I just couldn't write. I just couldn't get a sentence out. And that's, I write every day of my life. And so, you know, obviously if you're tired or hormonal or <laughs> there's a something else is happening these things materialize in different ways so yeah I don't know I mean I guess that's that's my sort of I feel yeah a little bit more fluffy I guess on my own experiences with ADHD I guess that's all I was saying yeah I understand that because sometimes it you know like it does take a lot to understand what is ADHD or what is just yourself and I say, you know, like you diagnose of like dyspraxia, dyslexia, and you know, like those all sometimes, even though ADHD is vastly different to dyspraxia and ADHD, but it does have some slim similarities, but more yeah. so with dyspraxia and like there's higher comorbid levels. So it does get quite like difficult to navigate, you know, where between what's hot and what's the different neurodivergent conditions. It's like, you know, I only got the diagnosis of autism and dyspraxia, but like I do wonder ever, like, could have also ADHD in it. So I'll say that we all got those personal questions. But back to when you was like saying with the questions about like, you know, ADHD and world, you know, like, understand why you would press them over. Like sometimes it can be a bit more visible with trauma responses because you do hear a lot of people who have like ADHD or autism and autism and ADHD because they're both quite highly comorbid and Mm -hmm. a lot of people do get diagnosed then with PTSD and CPTSD because of like negative experiences whether that's being in school struggling going into the radar and you know be more you know, like, uh, struggling more with relationships and friendships, feeling isolated. So there's yeah. that side of things. And it's like that thing, because, like, if, like, ADHD feels like there's been a recent boom in diagnosis in the last few years, because I'll tell you that when you got diagnosed and, like, did your own research about it and, and research about dyspraxia and dyslexia, it was before, like, TikTok and lots of the book, but there's the thing that lot well, it seems like last few years ago that it was only like typically seen as like as I seen it, it's always been seen as like more of a naughty, disruptive, loud in the corner of the classroom gets like kicked or sent for detentions yeah. to her teacher's office, isolation and all that. You know, it's all that stereotype that you know, being the kind of confronted with and changed with. So, like, a lot more, if it be like women and minority genders, or people who present ADHD in different ways, getting a lot more diagnoses now. And that's why I think there's a lot of confusion around in the media. For sure. And I think, I think that it's also, like, understandably hard I think, it, you know, it's it's interesting that I think people find it difficult. One of the things that I thought about a lot when I was writing the book and still think about a lot is this idea of, you know, obviously about diagnosis, about labels, about these things, these tools which are 
incredibly helpful and really helpful for you to be able to get the support to be able to identify how you experience the world and I wonder to the extent which yeah people people are lots of people are really struggling and and looking for answers about how they how they experience yeah how they experience the world and you know I think it's amazing that I mean we know the power of the internet but it's amazing that people can find support systems and find information there's always a pushback on on those sorts of things I know that you know obviously people don't like self-diagnosis for lots of reasons and I think it's also worth remembering that lots of people don't have access you don't have access to formalized diagnosis uh it's really incredibly hard to get those appointments it's incredibly hard to get the support that you need and i think that what i find incredibly frustrating at the like current conversation and climate is that there's a this like massive yeah dialogue around like why are so many people getting diagnosed with adhd or self-diagnosed with adhd and there's multiple through my eyes there's multiple prongs to this question is that like you said, ADHD is not exclusively our stereotype of it, for one. And so now there's information about the other ways in which it can materialize. That unsurprisingly has has brought up, yeah, has has brought up lots of things for people who identify themselves within that. Um, but the one of the big things is that people are trying to access help and they can't. And and so there sort of seems to be a bit of a you know, I get very frustrated when it's like, well, you can't self-diagnose, but also there's no way of you being able to access the formal avenues for help because of the oversubscription. Yeah, I mean, it's it's frustrating, I think. And I, I understand that, I mean, people aren't, people don't have access to, I've got a friend who's who can't get her dose of medication. And it's like, people are trying to do it, quote unquote, the proper way, but it's also very hard when those avenues are not easy to access yeah like i, I know there there's uh, like a sort of around adhd medication that will affect like probably like a, a quite a lot of people in the uk like maybe up to a million uh, yeah. and that's like going to be something that happen across like several weeks right now uh, and so uh, as it like said when with the adhd it's something that i said like you would maybe dyslexia and dyspraxia would pose like pose a lot more challenges if you were in like a typical workplace and then I guess it's like the, that you find that a lot of experiences with like you know like the constant struggle with like the workplace and then having the right environment to do that and for you like in terms of managing it and not having I guess been into like the more like negative experiences of it is like having the self-employed, you know, creative like way of working, which like obviously isn't accessible to most, but you know, it is a bit more accessible to neurodivergent people. But from the book, you seem like a natural storyteller and quite a creative person, and it seemed like almost like it's like inevitably you would have gone down that route of like creating your own stories and exploring that from young age. So what has like the do you think like being new with divergent has like influenced you into the career you're in and at all helped you in like the work you're doing? 
Well, for sure. As I said earlier, there's no separating me from the way that I view the world and the way that I view the world is so linked to my neurodivergence. I think the thing I'm so grateful for is that, yeah, there's been some difficulties, but ultimately I've had, you know, I've, I've been so lucky to have the support of family and the the aim in my like education and the, the way that I was raised was that I would like be the best version of myself and that best version of me has always been yeah a big reader a big storyteller I'm a bit of a clown I like I like chatting shit I'm nosy I love gossip and all of those things are massively linked to who I am and what I do on a day-to-day basis and that's my career is finding out like how can I earn money by being myself I know that the way that I look at the world is very unique and that despite everything it wasn't beaten out of me metaphorically I feel like I dodged a bullet in that sense I think that if I hadn't had the support of my family and I hadn't had that sort of affirmation from really great teachers that that sort of core element elements of myself which is is the storyteller is the yeah is is the is the nosy the nosy gobshite like if I I, those parts of me were encouraged and you know I'm I'm I am grateful every single day where I get to do my work I'm so grateful that I like get to be myself and that that's and that's like all I could possibly ask for really yeah it's a great like persistent being with yourself so you know like we talked about that like you did a playoff everything is going to be KO but was there any like plays that you like written and performed before that and what are the things the other ideas that you developed afterwards that you know what are the like the things you've been able to work on so I have I've moved a little bit more into fiction rather than non-fiction so making up stories though to be honest like a bit of a secret it's like I don't really make anything up I collect from my life experiences and create new characters and see what they do but it, it for me it's always like a pursuit truth and I guess that's why I sort of love gossip I love finding out what people are doing and then sort of thinking about like what would that be as a story yeah I've worked on I've been working on a project for a couple of years about it's a fictionalization of of a relationship like a very important relationship I've had in the last five years it's a platonic sort of friendship story a bit like about a boy or curious incident the dog in the night time yeah which is based on a, a real life teaching relationship I had with a young man I mean he's 18 now who had his has his own experiences of neurodivergence and so in some ways you know like that theme like I say because it's me will sort of probably always be present in my work in some way and I've been moving more towards trying to write tv and film rather than another book but and and yeah. I, haven't, I haven't done any theatre for a, for a very long time but that was covid as uh, well I think sometimes you know Peter, I assume that you know, it can be quite a lot in terms of like, you know, like finding the right places to perform it and you know, like, I guess, right out and, you know, work out how to, I guess, do it long form and make it, you know, like a, you know, like an income form lot, I guess, sometimes. Yeah. must be incredibly difficult and I see that, you know, like, I, I assume that probably feet has gone through quite a tough part considering the pandemic and you know, after COVID and all that. But, uh, you know, I guess it seems that, I guess, probably more visual movies or TV shows more seems more up because 
like with you, Brock, like you do have like illustrations featured in it. And, you know, like you do try to, I know like with the, like I listened to the audiobook first and I know that's like where your you preference of reading is to like also be able to listen to audiobooks as much as reading any physical books. So I think that is the element, I guess. I enjoy that multimedia quite visual, you know, experience of developing ideas. So as you said, to the last, you know, like you're working on a currently a movie, you know, like based on like a neurodivergent thing that they've experienced. And so what are the other projects you managed to work on before then? I've done all sorts of stuff before I was doing I was doing theatre, I did a whole range of, of things. I mean, I had a theatre company and we did a lot of stuff about sort of gender and sexuality and all sorts of different storytelling. I mean, a lot of my career has like largely been a bit about being sort of agile and moving around and doing lots of different stuff. Like you said, it's it's try to find all these different types of income streams and different types of projects. I made a short film with an Italian streetwear brand called Lotto. That was a fun one. That was before COVID in Milan. I've been teaching for the last five years as well. So I think one of the things I've really loved about my career is that it's, it's been pretty broad and it's I've learned so much from each different bit of it. Like you say, like I love the visual parts of it. I love the multimedia. I love being able to the performing of the show, of doing KO in theatres, that was amazing because you get audience interaction. I love the book because I get messages from people from all over the world who've read it that could never have seen the show. And I think for me, a lot of what I've been thinking about in terms of like the future is has been how do you, I think I'm pretty solid in my my voice and how I make my work. I think the thing that I've been thinking about more increasingly is how do I access audiences before covid and when i was doing the theater i had a sort of more clear avenue of how you can communicate to your audience and i'm i'm not massive on i don't really do much in the way of social media but i do miss having a dialogue with audiences and i say audiences you know with people who engage with my work i i do think that a lot of you know i'm i'm massively influenced by that exchange of me talking to other people and my interactions with the world massively impact the work that I make so yeah I think I've been I've been thinking more increasingly about yeah how to do that I don't have any answers yeah so I guess it's something you're still working on now you went to get interactive audiences and so it's like something that I, when I was looking up about yourself for the podcast because it could tell you that you haven't used social media yeah. much you know like and it's unlike because like I tend to use it as like a way of like researching in terms of like what you know things to ask people about you know and see like what people like people things they people say and you know like post about and just to get an idea of like who they are and what things yeah. I, I can explore to have different conversations with you know people and make sure that things feel a bit fast in it each conversations. So I said that they have le- had less, you know, uh, audience interaction for the last few years. But if you were more active on social media, but like within the past few years, what are the things that I guess you would be like sharing about on social media? And what are the things that 
you know, since releasing a book, you know, has gone in it, you know, gone on in your life that if you were right to write like a bonus chapter, what would you write about now? If I was to write another chapter, I think it would, um, I think a lot of it would be about community. I think it would be about the, you know, the last few, you know, the last few years of my life have been about, you know, how do we, how do we, I say we, how do I live in the world? How do I interact with other people? How do you create structures around you that, that lift you up and that you lift up other people? I think that that's probably been the the newest part of my life. And that's obviously more personal, but I think that, but I think it's a really important question. I think it's probably a question that a lot of, you know, I think the while obviously I'm, you know, divergent, that's a huge part of me. I, I think it will always be a part of my work. I don't know how much more of it will be sort of, you know, if it was, I, I don't know how much more it would be like headline of the work that I do. I think it will always just be a part of it. I think a lot more I've, I've been thinking about how do we tell story, you know, the stories I'm interested in telling is like, how do how do we live? I mean, that's that's a big question. And I think that's always been what my work's about. Like, how how do we live in this world and how do we remain true to ourselves and how do we, you know, build communities and still love each other? I mean, I think that that's, that that's been a lot of what my a lot of what I've spent the last few years thinking about what are things that you know in terms of like when you said like there you think about how do we live so what are things that in terms of what does community mean to you and what does the question how do we live mean to you and what are the things that when you say how do we live what are the things do you think about well, I think I guess a lot of it for me is about like consciousness and and how do we, how do I make the decisions in my day to day life that align with my values? I think I guess for me, so much of it is about creativity. You know, I know how do we, you know, I I can't. Life is not good for me if I'm not making stuff. Whether that you know is for an audience or whether it's for myself, that's massively. And I I think that everybody should have some sort of outlet for creativity and that can be anything you know and and I think I and you don't need to turn it into a side hustle or (laughs) to make money out of it in fact I think you shouldn't you should have these lovely private passions that bring you a lot of joy and you know I have I have mine that aren't writing and I guess yeah I, I guess also thinking about yeah the like nature of love you know just you know casual casual thoughts like that you know how do we you know love love as an action that we not as a feeling at love as a verb what do we you know how do we treat the people around us how do we treat ourselves in fact you know and you know that obviously materializes in all sorts of different ways depending on what the day brings yeah yeah as i was saying about you and you like yeah to the monastery and education at the start of the book when you was like five or six then you know like you kind of like we're already exploring, you know, like values of like what does like love mean, you know, like because you said as a young kid, you was pushed like the ideas of imagination because you know, like you said about when you was in school back then in Africa, then you know, you was you wasn't really like allowed to or you know, like discovered from like playing in the sense of like you know, these commercialized. You know, you always and whatever characters and you know mainstream media that you might get on like TV and film, 
uh, that you was like supposed to create your own like characters and world play, but also you know like you was kind of like was rather than like as I said when you went to America, there was a lot of more like natural uh, national patriotism and all type of values. But you know like you grew up at a society life of like the values of like love, fairness, equality, and that kind of niceness and kind of liberal way of the world or like finding your way of expressing yourself. So do you think there's that element of like your bringing and your childhood even back from then that influences how you get support the creative projects you do now? Oh, for sure. And I think that, oh, I'm not going to be I can't remember even who said it, but I mean, there's a a great quote about like, as a child, you try to be an adult and as an adult, you try to be, a you know, you're trying to get back to that childlike wonder. And I think that, yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm, I'm very much still that, you know, five-year-old who, who's very concerned with love and kindness and, and playing and being silly. And, and so, and the bits of my life where I get to, you know, touching those points are always you know incredibly joyful and I think yeah for sure there's yeah I, I think that those experiences you know absolutely influence the way that I vision the world and those you know I guess that ultimately you know there's always that thing of like who am I in all these different contexts and it, I my upbringing was very unique in that I was placed in so many different contexts and so I was you know, I, I think I had to ask myself, who am I? You know, who am I in South Africa? Who am I in America? Who am I in Oxford? Each time that I was like relocated, it's like you have to find who you are within that space. And that involves like taking on some of these new environments and finding out new things, which is amazing, but also managing to keep a hold of that like core self. I know that my core self, you know, loves a story and loves a cup of tea and mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it's pretty silly um yeah and you know so it's like kind of allowed you to get yeah I think like a lot of creative work you know like like storytelling and you know try to find ways of like fictionalizing stories that you know like you know like we got told it gives you that experience of like relating to like you know creative like younger creative self so like so from like how how do you find how do you find that you've managed to you know keep that but also explore that and you know beyond like your new divergent self that you already expressed you know or have you found that how do you into any your work and you know whether it be doing your like the drama courses and and you know different writing as to uh, you know growing up in different environments beyond your like new self-urgent self who have you found yourself to be and to and you know from like beyond the new divergencies what like what are the most things that interest you in you I mean I'm I'm you know I'm so much of my I mean I I think storytelling itself so much of it is about you know trying to understand difficult situations and I think you know who I am is a I'm a clown with you know I'm 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 silly I like making people laugh but I also like making people cry I think you know a, a lot of a lot of my work I think is like that's trying to straddle that 
line, not for any, not, no, hopefully not. I don't aim to be manipulative by any stretch of the imagination. I just am inherently interested in difficult stories or, you know, questions of, you know, how do we continue to live in difficult situations? And for me, the answer to that is humour. You know, I, I think that's a thing that I've inherited from my my family is that, you know, tough things happen and that the way that we survive is by telling stories and if they're funny stories even better and so I think that that that's that's so like core to me Um, and so you know those stories can come in all sorts of forms but that's sort of that's sort of you know yeah and so as you say that you know like you do like to you know be sort of like funny side and you know like not to take things too seriously and clown around but like, so what was the things that, you know, in terms of like, what are the things that make you like laugh and what are the things that you kind of been influenced by, you know, in terms of creative work? I mean, the, probably one of the, I mean, so many things have influenced, influenced me, but I think probably comedically, you know, I probably have never been the same since I watched my parents showed me the young ones when I was 10 or something, which is a sort of very old school reference of Rick Mail and Ed Edmondson and everyone from, I don't know, when was that? The early 80s. So sort of very, very, very silly, silly voices, outrageous sort of surrealist elements. I think things, I mean, in a, in a sort of quite bizarre way my like classics degree has had a you know I mean I've always it's such a with hindsight I sort of think oh it's so funny that I went and studied all this ancient Greek and Roman stuff but actually you know I loved it and so like the influence of that's been pretty big in terms of mythology I really I love archetypes I love these sort of ancient stories that we've told each other for a long time so you know common motifs through myths and I mean the ancient Greeks loved a dick joke so I mean I think that 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 was you know I I always found that entertaining and I guess you know teenagers I find teenagers to be just the most just so funny and great and weird and so you know I think working with teenagers has been a great gift but I mean I hated being one but I I I think that they're they're really if you're you know nobody nobody is as funny as a teenager and I think that that's because they're having such a rough time that they (laughs) they get to be really outrageous and fun yeah as I said you know like you're working a lot on your like film projects so was like been working working on them and developing the stuff you've been working on now and the arts industry. How has that been? You saying? Yeah, yeah. How has that been for you? Yeah, I mean, it's been really interesting. I mean, I haven't. I mean, I'm still fairly early stage on lots of stuff, and so I haven't. You know, I've yet to. I haven't been on set in a while, but yeah, I think I. I think what's lovely about working in the creative industries is that there's a lot of neurodivergent people. I mean, you know, you. Lots of people leave school early. Lots of people are very bright and have a, you know, want to have a different sort of working experience. And being on set is very much not like being in the office. And so, yeah, I mean, I th- I think you end up me- meeting a lot of like like mind pe- like minded people. I think, uh, yeah, I'm very, yeah, I, I'm very lucky to to experience all sorts of of different environments which I think is what I like about my life is that you know very rarely is you know two days and you know I I can have 
you know all sorts of different types of day which I which I really enjoy and yeah I think there's an element of obviously for me it works I think there's an element of obviously instability you know it's like if you're self-employed you've got to you know you've got to hustle you've got to make sure you're earning you know enough money and juggling all sorts of different things in some ways you end up doing more admin but uh, I think I I would always I know that I mean that's why I choose to do it I'd always rather have that you know I don't mind the instability so much as as I prioritize the freedom you know yeah because like it's like I said earlier on you manage find your coping mechanisms and your way of being organized as I said you know like you keep a lot of things in your diary like while you take manage and you know like all the different meetings and whatever you might have going on so I guess keeping a diary is one way of you know managing our instability and making that work for you but mm-hmm. you know like we touched on how you ADHD affects you but how do you find that you know your dyspraxia affects you oh I'm just a, I'm just a lot of it's clumsiness a lot of it is just physically being in a space and yeah I mean to be honest I feel I feel like a lot of a lot of the things I found quite difficult I think the fact that I've lived in the same house for five years has made a big difference I think things like moving and having to like create new systems every time I moved I think I found that you know when I was younger incredibly difficult whereas now because I've lived somewhere for five years it's like I know what drawer I put this thing in I know you know the systems that I I mean I have to be quite strict with the systems but I think something about that sort of cohesion is not the right word but like the, the you know the the things are reliable and so that that I have found I've found you know I know how long it takes to get the tube from one place to the other and so yeah I I, I think yeah I I mean I'm just always covered in bruises I think for me a lot of <laughs> a lot of it is the sort of physical aspects and the yeah I just have to, I leave my keys in the same place and if I don't then I'll forget them so yeah <laughs> thank you like I always like that's the only thing with myself, you know, like, I always forget where that two places are very put stuff, you know, that, like, I always constantly looking for something, you know, or, you know, like, trying to find very, because, like, I got, like, like, almost like a 10 second memory half time. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, as, say, like, saying earlier on, you know, like, in terms of your dyslexia, you know, like, like, it's something that, you know, like, Paul, you know, you kind of break the stereotype of, you know, like struggling a lot. You didn't understand that time of diagnosis that, you know, that you could be dyslexic when you knew, you know, you could read quite a lot and, you know, I had great interest in reading because, you know, you're quite advanced reader for the age because it'll been through quite a lot of books. And I think you got to big vocabulary. And I know that. There's a lot of people, you know, like still like dealing with like a bit like that. I've been turning on the EA stables and all active awareness, maybe like even with the like visual processing difficulties. And so, what are the things that I've found that, you know, has helped you from a young age and for any other like videos, like once to creative, right? And interesting, reading a lot more of. Dyslexia, but maybe knowing how to do that. What are the things that helped you and what, like, advice would you give to people who are, you know, like, I guess dealing with that confidence dynamic of, like, 
thinking like off that mix of being quite good at reading, but yet can struggle to read if you get me Yeah. So I think part, I mean, I always talk about the power of delusion. I think that part for me, so much of it is like, I think if I, I, I wonder whether if I'd known that I was dyslexic, whether I would have read as much. I think in I I loved it, but I think after I found out, I sort of felt like I, I suddenly realised that I wasn't very good at it, quote unquote. Like I realised that like when I was reading that, I like wasn't reading every word. I mean, and it didn't matter because I was reading for pleasure. And, and and I think I think for me, that's so much of what I, when I capture that feeling, that's when I'm at my best. It's like, I actually... You, you so the way that I write is that you I write and then I edit and the rule is it has to be on the page it doesn't have to be good and I think that that is how I have really overridden any of that like internalized you know like all that like negative yeah you know chat within me and that I think you know this is true for everyone whether you're you know neurodivergent or not like it has to be on the page it doesn't have to be good in the same way that like I if I'm enjoying if I like the story and I'm enjoying it it doesn't matter if it takes it doesn't matter if you have to read the page three times if you're enjoying it I think that you know that the problem is that this idea that you have to be quote-unquote good at things and that is the, the thing that stops you right I mean for me, so much of it is about pursuing your, you know, pursuing your bliss, you know, finding the things that you get joy out of. And so for me, the thing that made a big difference for reading, I mean, I'm back reading loads again. And that is if I don't if I'm not enjoying a book, I just stop, you know, if I don't have to read it, if I'm if there's a certain point where I feel like I'm not enjoying it, just stop. Because I know that if I keep pushing forward and I'm not liking it, that I'll stop reading and then I won't read yeah. for three months. Whereas when I'm reading things that I love, you know, I'm reading really quickly and I'm having a great time. And it doesn't matter if I'm reading every single word on that page, if I'm having a good time and it's, you know, I go to a book group and, you know, it's, it's interesting, I think, you know, because I, I think I probably read quite differently to the rest of the people there. And, you know, sometimes I'm like, oh, I feel like we read different books and we probably easily could because I read the books that I, <laughs> I read the book that was, that I interpreted and maybe they read the book that they interpreted and that's fine. I think there's an, you know, there's an element to which, you know, like I don't, I guess equally it's like, I don't mind if I would never mind if somebody read my book and they only, they interpreted it a completely different way than I intended it. I mean, you know, part of that is the gift of art, right? Is that, every single viewer or audience or reader has their own experience of that thing and that's what's sort of magical about it and so yeah I think my advice would always be like to enjoy the process of of your experience of it and you know if it you don't have to do it right quote unquote because there is no right I mean I think that's yeah and it's like something that like I you know like struggled to take interest of reading when I was in school that like I might like read like a few books but you know like I wasn't really like that as interested like I remember we had like you know like like silent silent reading like in primary school for like 15 minutes a day and like remember like pretending to read a book but (laughs) I actually read it so like I've had like 
totally, even though I, haven't got like a dyslexia diagnosis, but I yeah. do have visual processing difficulties. Yeah. But like then, but from like since I've become a, like an adult now, we like being able to like discover audio books and like it's something that I think once you're able to guess discover you know your own interests and yeah. read something that wasn't like a chore and you know like explore stuff for whatever you want to read then it gets to be more enjoyable than you know choosing from the like limited self you might have as yeah. like in a school library or whatever yeah. you know yeah for sure and that's it it's like the minute that you you have this you access you know the, I mean, it's amazing. You know, it's amazing. You can sort of find a book on anything if you know if you're into that. And the, you know, there's yeah, audio books. I guess that's it. It's like finding a ways to enjoy to enjoy it is is what it's about, really. Or that you're, you know, or even if you, you know, the things that I've read that I didn't enjoy but I got lots out of. You know, I think it's things that make you feel alive. And when you can sort of pursue those things, everything else doesn't seem so important. You know. Yeah the the effort it takes or the difficulty or that you get the words wrong or whatever that's that pursuing the thing that makes you feel alive yeah like with like with your education you know you've been into like the educational systems and like I tend to ask like guests about what things like they you know would like to see done to improve, improve like society for only would to people but like reflecting on your experiences of educational, you know, like to in different school environments. What uh, like what was like the best type of education system, you know, you've been through and what are the things that you know would like to see that improve like in a school environment, you know, for neurodivergent people and what would have made it be bit better for yourself. So I think like from my experiences of both being a student and being a teacher or teaching the thing that I've always found the most fruitful is is like an engagement in the relationship between teacher and student I think you know in Oxford you have you know your and they're not always fun you know you have your tutorials where it's you and the world expert on you know Greek religion or whatever and then you have to sort of defend your point that you've badly researched like that it wasn't always fun, but there was something quite I think there's something really transformative in the sort of in the sort of relationship of teaching and that the places where I've learned the most as a person, as well as like educationally, like the literal things that I learn often come through feeling safe in an environment, feeling pushed as well and encouraged to think outside the box and and argue and think critically. And I think that the ways that we can access that are often through sort of, I have always found it's been through nearly one-on-one support. You know, I mean, I learned to read and write because I had one-on-one support. I have, you know, I teach exclusively, basically one-on-one. And I think that, you know, obviously, I I mean, you're not asking me about how the practicalities of this would work, but I know that that when when you have like nowhere to hide, (laughs) (laughs) you actually have to do some really good thinking um and if you have a good relationship with that person that the other one person that you're in the room with um you can go into places that you might not go otherwise which might be 
you might try and write an essay, even if you feel like you can only write two sentences, you might be able to access a part of your thinking that, well, I think, you know, so much of it is about, for me, education is about safe spaces for people to have a, to, to think and to get it wrong and that be okay. And I think that unfortunately, a lot of our education system is about teaching people to get it right. And by right, I mean, marks on a mark scheme. And so, you know, in my idealized education, you know, it's a lot about dialogue. Yeah. And, you know, like, it's nothing that, you know, being able to like, as you say, get, you know, like, be able to get things wrong. Like, Sometimes that is an important thing because, you know, like to be able to learn from yourself and like mistakes is like something that we all need to be able to do in the adults. Like just, you know, like you learn from our failures and know how to like, I guess, pick yourself up from when you like if you get something wrong and learn from your, you know, like actually be able to uh, assess yourself and think to look, actually ask yourself what what went wrong, what can I do better next time, and, you know, all that stuff, because I say that, you know, to be able to think about stuff like that is more about the more practical skills, I say that, just focusing on getting right doesn't actually give you the, I guess, skills that you might need for in real life, then, and, you know, it's you need to be more than that, just than what you can get from the exam paper. And I say that, uh, but when support can be helped, I say for neurodivergent people, but I say, but it's like as you referenced earlier on when you were growing up, you were in like classroom of 35, you know, plus, you know, people are, so like there's a lot more that needs to be done to, you know, have that education that, you know, like can talk directly to neurodivergent people in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you know, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, ultimately, it's a question of what you think education's for. And I think that, you know, that's sort of the tension in school systems is that, you know, there's an element of, you know, to what extent is school to teach you sort of social compliance or to be a good, a good employee or, how far is it sort of glorified childcare? How far is it, you know, like making sure that you can sort of read and write enough? I don't know. I mean, I think that these are all, you know, the the big questions really. And I don't, for me, I, I think, I mean, you know, my, I think education is lifelong and it's about expanding your mind and an ability to, yeah, I mean, yeah, like you say, I mean, I think being able to get it, being able to fail I think is one of the most important life skills there is, if not the most important, because it's inevitable. We're, we all fail. We all fail constantly. And and if you, you know, but also I guess some people, you know, I know people that didn't, didn't fail until much later in life and it was much more catastrophic. Whereas, you know, I think by the time I was 18, I got a lot of things wrong and, and you sort of realize it, you know, that, that you don't die. And that you go, you know, and that you can get up and you can do it differently, and that you've probably learned something more from getting it wrong than getting it right. And so, yeah, I think that you know, creating those safe environments is really important, and that you know, and and that, but unfortunately, schools that have to get good 
results to go on a, you know, on a, what's it called, table, you know, that the, the priority isn't, isn't to, yeah, isn't to, to create a safe environment for kids to fail, yeah. <laughs> but, a, but, a, but a environment where, you know, the most children get, let, got, you know, see and over so that the league table, there we go, there's a word. Yeah. So, yeah. It's like, look, look, in your perspective, it's been a looking at all the wrong places, really. Yeah, but, I think. So. And yeah. I, under- I understand why. I mean, you know, I understand why they're structured that way. I mean, yeah. I, I just think I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm not a pragmatist. I'm a, you know, I like to think about what amazing thing it could be rather than yeah. like what practical thing it should be. I'm, 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 I'm sure there are lots of people who do educational policy, which who would be able to tell you about more pragmatic ways. But yeah. my thing is like burn it all down. <laughs> Uh, and so, you know, like I said, uh, you've been able to do some men to, to run, teach them to, to run. And yeah. so what, what has that been in and what, what things that have you like learned from how to teach another person? What has that been like for yourself to be able to teach other people? Oh, it's been amazing. I love it. Yeah, it's been, I think that's it. It's like that real, like I've learned so much. I mean, for me, you know, that the process of like teacher student like it should be a two-directional relationship and you know I have always felt massively that I have learned loads from the kids that I teach and and that you know is amazing I have yeah I mean it's it's been it's been really fascinating you know I, I work you know I guess I'm like an SEN specialty specialist really like I, I work with kids who like quite a few kids who are school refusers who aren't in mainstream mainstream education I've done some homeschooling and so that's been really interesting because in some ways that is the universe in some ways telling me to put my money where my mouth is you know when I say let's burn it all down and find other ways you know that is sort of what that has been it's been these kids who won't be in mainstream school so how do you give these kids an education and so a lot of that for me has been about it it's like deeply personalized it's like i don't do the same lesson for every student uh, i actually have to tailor everything for each individual person and and i've really enjoyed that you know and, and in some ways it's it's sort of like it sounds like it's more work but it's actually not because if you do that then they do the work and then you're not spending ages telling people that they should just do it because you're telling them to and so yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I've had to practice lots of my patient skills and I've had to make sure that my language is really clear. I've, you know, it's given me lots of things, but it's incredibly rewarding. And, you know, I I feel like I have put, I have, I have given, I have been responsible, you know, and these kids have been responsible too, but like people have received educations that they otherwise wouldn't have because we did it that way. And that's been great. That's been, you know, pretty amazing. Yeah. And I didn't have to work in a school. And that's the main thing. I've never ever, you know, my main thing is like you can't get me in another school. Yeah, because like I can understand that. Guess as helpful, like as you said, you know, like your book has documented your own school experience. But I guess it has been quite enlightening for you to also be able to beyond your own like experiences you documented in the book, tell also again other people's experiences of what, you know, like life in school can be because, you know, like you work working with, like, I don't know how many children you have, but, you know, it's like learning how 
what the experience is and you like spending time to learn a lot about them and how they they need to be taught and you know all the best things to help them live and you know as she's because like lots of the educational system is you know if you they get you know, like excluded from schools and you know like put in like extra isolation units or like separated from the you know mainstream classes within these schools there's lots of things where where as so you know like there's you know like when you talk about ADHD and you know like there's lots of that stereotype of perception about the loud disruptive you know kids in class but yeah. you know like in school systems I think there's still that negative perception where you know pe- people who are you know, like maybe a bit distracted because they struggle to focus things in that classroom and yeah. not getting the right support. You know what? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, like are uh, doing it because you know it's that I guess lack of support for the ADHD or dyspraxia, dyslexia, or any other learning difficulty and difficulty. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I've I've been working a lot with lots of kids with autism, and so like for me, I actually with hindsight now I'm like oh I definitely have some sort of sensory elements you know to my own experience too but yeah I have a, a newfound respect and understanding of how of, of why people why certain students might really struggle to be in a classroom and that they're and that the way that that might materialize in lots of different ways yeah and like these ideas of like quote-unquote behavioral issues yeah I think it's it's yeah it it really it really does highlight that you know the school is sort of one size fits all and that does not fit (laughs) a lot of people and so uh, yeah it's it's been really interesting to like you say be on the other side which is like the support system side rather than the like student side Um, yeah and as we've seen about sensory stuff Sometimes there's not like a no bit of neurodivergence where like where if you have ADHD and dyspraxia, they can still have those like sensory yeah. issues and stuff like that, even if it isn't like an autistic diagnosis that you may have. Yeah. And I guess probably that you know like a, you know like as said in the book that you, you prefer like after yourself got diagnosed with autism and probably there might be. Yeah. Some autism in your, running in your family, so oh, I guess we're yeah. working <laughs> with those children, uh, children must have helped you learn a lot more about like your brothers may be experience of being autistic. Yeah, and I think in some ways, I think the reason that I think I work quite well with these children is that you know what I sometimes get called in as you know, sort of a bit like, oh, this child is very difficult to work with, and I very you know like some you know can be hard work but work is hard you know like doing things is hard but actually you know I think that you know I I think I understand the kids a lot a lot of a lot because of my brother and I grew up with him and you know to me I'm like that behavior is sort of normal (laughs) you know like you know I understand you know why you've completely blacked out your entire bedroom you know like I you know I understand and it's sort of, yeah, sometimes it's, yeah. Uh, so in some ways it feels a little bit like, sort of, with hindsight, a lot of things make a lot more sense. But yeah, no, I think, yeah, uh, and I definitely, and the other way around too, yeah, I definitely have a lot more understanding about my brother's experiences now with hindsight. I mean, I think. Yeah, I guess it's, a, I guess you 
But do you think like you only have or dyspraxia, dyslexia, ADHD? Have you ever questioned whether you might be autistic yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think I have. I yeah, I did. I mean, I did look into you know when I was researching the book, I was like, oh, I should look into this too. I think yeah, I think the sort of more sensory elements of it. I mean, I'm not actually great at eye contact and things like that, but also. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it, it. It. I guess at this point, it. It doesn't. I didn't feel like it. I guess in some ways, I'm like, it doesn't really matter to me. <laughs> yeah, I get um, what you mean because, it, I can assume that probably like, at age where you are, you know, when you like sorted yourself yeah. for like a career, you know, got your yeah. own diagnosis that like, where like where it's like um you know like a you you don't need an actual diagnosis for what you need but that like I guess you probably haven't moved out to like self-diagnosing or self-labeling but it's like maybe it's like probably comfortable right now where it's like maybe you have maybe you haven't but and if something you know if something else changed then maybe I'd look into it but I think largely I'm like I guess that's sort of why I like the term neurodivergent and I think that that works really well for me and it really works well within my family and that like we all have different permutations of how that impacts us and it impacts us all sort of differently and in some ways the same and and so you know I've got enough of a diagnosis that you know if I went into an institution I get the help that I you know I have the the legal protection quote unquote but I mean what protection but but yeah like ultimately I I feel pretty much like I am I'm Kaya I am who I am and you know, it. I yeah. it wouldn't be a bad thing if I was autistic. I, I, you know, it, and it wouldn't be a good thing. It just would be a thing. And like, currently, it, it yeah, there's no need for that. And I, I, yeah, I think I don't think I am. I see that. Just I thought just put out this question, but yeah, I guess you just yeah. Well, and so what was? Um, I was just trying to think. Look out next question. Sorry. Um, yeah, and. I guess it's something that, you know, like, at least then, you know, like now you've been able to guess a lot of, understand a lot more about, how, like, how you feel a bit more confident, you know, how, like, you see, like, how you are with your new divergent self and kind of got the amount of answers that you need to know for now. Because, like, because, like, when you were saying about, like, mentioned about people, like, you have all, autism or not, but like, I think I have ADHD or not. But I think it's something that maybe went to explore sometime. Yeah. But like, it's like sometimes I find that you look at neurodivergent conditions because, like, it's they made off, you know, like so many different traits. And like, you know, like some of them between like ADHD and autism to dysparks and ADHD, they can overlap, yeah. you know, and get quite messy because, you know, like looking at neurodivergent conditions especially probably like when you researched about it for the book, you know, yeah. like you're looking at you're like a long list of traits that can overlap or can only be in certain conditions because it's almost like looking at your brain at, like as like a messy bag of ideas. You don't know what's there. Yeah, exactly. And the like trying to dissect, well, this could be this or it could be that. It's, I think, yeah, I, I don't, 
feel like I'm searching for an answer for something and you know and I think that that you know I think I can think a lot more holistically about myself and my neurodivergence and, and that's really helpful and that's because I feel like I'm I hate the word functioning but you know like I have found a thing that works for me and that I'm happy and so and that's great that's all all anyone can hope for really is to be able to find a way to be themselves with yeah. as little pushback as possible and I think like we should be able to look at these things holistically because like I think sometimes can be a bit better for the neurodivergent person or a person in general be able to be able to look at them these things like as a bit of a social identity as much as also like these things are disabilities also like a neurological difference that can be also you like make not need to go to like a doctor or any like psychologist to get diagnosis because like if you got self-diagnosing, then you know, like it shouldn't have to, you know, go to like a medical profession to get get understood and you know work out what's best for you with, as I said, with more holistic reports. Mm-hmm. Like, and I know we covered quite a lot of ground on stuff. So, is, is what things would you say like about you know your neurodivergencies, your learning difficulties that you know you want people to know about? that they might not know about if they were divergent conditions or the they were divergent conditions rather, or the things that people still don't understand that they should really understand. I think the, the older generation are definitely getting better at it. But I think there's the thing that's sort of always been a bit of a shame is this idea that like that it's all like a new thing. And I think that that maybe is is the thing that people have had this neurodivergent experience for all time. It's just that we had much more <laughs> derogatory labels for them. I mean, I think that one of the things that like I was really passionate about or, or really like sort of lit a candle for me when I was doing all the research was when I was when I was on all these like Facebook pages for like sort of neurodivergent people, and it was just full of mums looking for help for their children at school. And um, you could, you know, and I just thought a lot about how, you know, these parents often probably also were experiencing some sort of neurodivergence, but didn't know about it. Um, and so I think that it, I would be interested in maybe the TikTok stuff is helping a certain generation of people access things that they wouldn't before. But I think the the books that I love reading about, or like the, I do really like hearing stories about older people who are having to sort of reassess their experiences, you know, people who are in their, I guess like my parents in their fifties and sixties and seventies and being like, okay, well, this isn't, this isn't a new thing. This is a, a thing that's always existed. We just have new language and understanding. Beyond that, like obviously, if people want to understand more about things, they can read your own book and read about yeah. more about your own experience. Yeah. But what are the things that you've read yourself and are the resources that help to understand a lot more about these neurodivergent conditions you would recommend if people want to understand a lot more? What are the other things that people today either read or follow on? Like, I really loved this is a story about somebody, his name's Philip Schultz. He's called the wrote a book called My Dyslexia. He learned to read when he was thirteen, and then got dyslexia when his grandson did. I remember loving that book. That was like one of the books I read when I got my diagnosis, The Dyslexic Advantage. I read that. I mean, again, haven't read that for years. For me, a lot of 
the stuff that really helped not I mean this is definitely sort of more as an adult and definitely more broadly reading into disability activism thinking a lot more about like looking into things like crip pride and sort of thinking about disability in a sort of more political model there's I've been reading a book called mad world which is about mental you know sort of more about mental health quote unquote I think for me thinking about things I guess not just as like neurodivergence but thinking about them in sort of more again holistically broad strokes of being like how does this you know thinking about neurodivergence as like part of disability movements I think is really important even just to sort of not center myself within it when I think about what my position and thinking about like social models of disability rather than medical models of disability. And with that, thanks again to uh, Kaya Stone for coming on the podcast. It was great to be able to have the chance to interview her and I hope you enjoyed the, this podcast. As I said, this interview will be able to watch from uh, tomorrow, uh, Tuesday, uh, the 31st of October. So we're going to decide to watch that on YouTube and Facebook watch. But you'll also be able to see highlights on uh, Instagram and TikTok about highlights. Sort clips of the interview. So please check out on the social media for any sort bits of uh, content from this interview. But if you want to follow KS on yourself, just search at KS on social media platforms. Oh, also, you'll be able to uh, find a book, uh, Everything is Going to Be K.O. Uh, by searching that on the internet. You can find it from uh, many online books. See if you went to get an online uh, electronic book, technology book, or purchase it online. You can find it but by searching it into any search engine. And so it, it'd be great if you'd be able to support Kia like that. And so hopefully you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. I'll hopefully it's get a written version on the website in the next coming days. As I said at the start, we, we subscribe to this podcast. Make sure people know about the podcast and encourage people to listen to it. Thank you again for tuning in to the podcast. This is me and Autistic Gyan singing out from the new Rainbow Cast uh, podcast with me, Autistic Gyan. Thanks you. See you next week, Father. Which hopefully I'll get you an interview with TJ Lucky Light chatting about autism and the, being autistic in the area of uh, club culture and DJing in like loud environments. And so that'd be great interview with us. We record it next coming day. Thank you again.